One, I've heard a pastor say that one way to think about understanding the Old Testament uh, in comparison to the New Testament is to think that where the New Testament gives you a principle, the Old Testament gives you a story. Where the New Testament gives you a concept, the Old Testament gives you an illustration. And last week we started our series that we're going to be in all semester in Exodus. This is such a rich book, and what we see is through this story in Exodus, we see God laying out the pattern of salvation. What we saw last week is that Exodus contributes to the narrative of the Bible. It's not a standalone book to be understood or interpreted only on its own terms. It's connected to a story that's already in motion, connected to a story that's already started in Genesis. In fact, most of the themes that we're going to encounter in the books of Exodus is the, in this first two chapters. We've already, we're going to see creation, recreation, death, and rebirth through water. We see the weak overcoming the strong, rescue and escape, God's provision and his providence, and we will see how and why God acts on our behalf. We'll see how he identifies with his people in their struggle. Last week, we focused on Pharaoh being against God's people, which really what we saw is Pharaoh being against God. Pharaoh, representative of Egypt and evil, being against God. And we were introduced to Moses as a baby. We saw that he was saved through the courage and desperate love of his mother and the pity had on him by Pharaoh's daughter, a pagan. And all of that's ultimately pointing to what? To God's provision and his plan and his protection for Israel through their deliverer. This morning we're going to be in the rest of chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. This section mainly focuses on Moses, but it ends with a reminder of what God's people are still going through, are still enduring, uh, and it's meant to prepare us for what's about to come next in the story of Exodus. So if you can or able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by, the well, by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, And where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses content to dwell with the man, uh, was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, 
And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. All right, be seated. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that your spirit would jump off the page, that we would, you would give us faith in the gospel once again, that you would change us according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the bulk of this second half of chapter 2 is comprised of three scenes having to do with Moses. And right away, you, you, end verse, uh, you get verse 10, you see Moses as a baby, as a child. And right away in verse 11, we see him as a fully grown adult. In fact, the, the scripture we had, Acts 7, Stephen says Moses is 40 years old at this time. The number 40 in the Old Testament is typically a symbolic number, not meaning Moses was not 40, but it's a number that usually is associated with testing and, be, and preparing somebody or something. So in more ways than one, we glean some help in understanding our text from Stephen's comments in Acts 7. We are also told in Acts 7 that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. So now we have a fully grown adult Moses having sat under and learned from the best scholars of his day, and he's primed and ready for the role that God has for him, the deliverer of God's people from the oppression of the Egyptians. Or is he ready? Uh, the narrator wastes no time in setting the scene for us. Moses leaves the comfort of the palace that he's been uh, raised in, and he goes out to look on the burdens of the Hebrew people. And one thing that we see right away is that Moses in some way identifies and has a heart for the Hebrews. While he was raised and educated by the Egyptians, his primary identity exposed in this text and these stories is that he doesn't associate himself as an Egyptian. The daughters that we saw Midian did, probably because of the way he was dressed or maybe even his accent, but he identifies himself as a Hebrew in his Hebrew heritage. <clears throat> we know that because of what happens in this first scene. There are not many details given. It's simply he sees an Egyptian oppressing and beating a Hebrew. It says one of his people. And when he saw, he looked around and he saw that the coast was clear, so to say, uh, he decided to take things in his own hands and kill the Egyptian and try to hide his body in the sand. Or so he thought, because just as quickly as that story ends, the narrator thrusts us into another scene. Another scene where there's conflict and there's fighting, but this time it's two Hebrews fighting, right? And he conc Moses concludes and decides who was in the wrong and who was in the right. And he decides to step in, not with violence this time, but with accusations. But the guy that he calls to be in the wrong not only mocks him, uh, not only yeah, mocks him asking who made you a prince and a judge over us, but also reveals that he knows what Moses was trying to hide. He knows that Moses murdered someone the day before. And when Moses is exposed, he rightly becomes afraid. Because without any detail, we are told that Pharaoh now finds out about it too. And Pharaoh is seeking to kill him. Pharaoh shows as much loyalty to Moses, who was raised in his palace by his daughter, as Moses has for the Egyptians. 
And so Moses flees from Pharaoh and he goes to the land of Midian. And while these two scenes are dramatic and action-packed, there is, it's brief and there's not much detail given at all. Therefore, what is included, I think, is important for us to glean. The information that is given is important for us to understand. So some main things to take away from those two brief stories is that Moses has embraced and seems to think of himself solely as a Hebrew, despite his upbringing as an Egyptian. He has a heart for justice against injustice, so much so that it's hard for him not to step in when he sees injustice happening. His heart for justice may be that he understands a little bit of his story as a baby and what he went through, but nowhere in these stories, when he's stepping in to try to execute justice, does he seek God, seek what God would have him do or what God's way would be in this situation. He just can't help himself to step in. He simply takes matters into his own hands as he sees fit, according to his impulse, usually from rage and anger. It doesn't seem to matter that Moses embraces his Hebrew heritage because he ends up getting rejected by both the Egyptians and the Hebrews. So he is left now with no people, with no home, and now with no power. And he's forced to flee for his life, and he ends up at a well, a well in Midian. And this is where the story slows down. So those first two scenes, it's as if someone's hitting fast forward. Or you're listening to a podcast and you hit times two, so you can go faster, right? Uh, but this is where the story slows down, and we are given more details here. Moses is fresh off of two different scenes where he seeks to help the oppressed and the one in need, and it has left him being rejected and in exile. But in Midian, he gets, there's another scene happening where the weak are being oppressed again. But this time, no Hebrews and no Egyptians are involved. He's a, it's a foreign people because he's in a foreign land. And yet Moses can't seem to help himself. There's injustice happening, right? You see his heart for, to deliver, his heart to execute justice, no matter where he is. So he can't help himself. So he enters in to defend these seven daughters of the priest of Midian against those, the shepherds the harsh shepherds going after them. But he goes one step further this time because he doesn't just defend them against the shepherds, but he actually stoops down to serve them by watering their flock. And it's in this scene in a foreign land with foreign people that the first time of him stepping in to deliver is appreciated, is celebrated, and is accepted. Not from his own people, but from a foreign people in a foreign place. It's almost as if God has led him out to this place in Midian, and he's showing Moses through the acceptance of his delivering these people that this is going to be your place for a while. This is going to be where you're accepted. This is where you need to stay in his acceptance. So he marries one of the priest's daughters, and they have a son. And now here's the question. Why is Moses here? Why is Moses in Midian? And you're like, Clay, you, you just retold the story that you just read are you going to retell the story again? Are you trying to squeeze as much as you can from this text to make sure that you don't go too short? No, I don't mean what happened. I'm asking the question, why did it happen? Why is Moses where he is? You see, what we've learned in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 last week is that while God is not explicitly named, he is everywhere. He is all over these pages. His hand is everywhere in these chapters. His hand is in everything because all of these events are part of his plan. 
And the text continues this theme that despite him not being mentioned, God is everywhere. And part of why Moses is exiled in Midian, part of why his intervention in Egypt was not met with the same reception as it was in Midian is because God wants Moses to be in Midian. Why? So he can be prepared to become the deliverer that God's people need. Moses was educated. He was fully grown adult. He embraced his Hebrew heritage, and he seemed to embrace the calling of a deliverer, but he was not ready. He was not ready to step in, step out of his, high pal- his place in the high palace and immediately become the deliverer for God's people. His heart to help the oppressed was not led by compassion and care. It was not led by a dependence on God and his ways and a patience for that, for the people. But it was led by anger, by brashness, by self-appointment. God has not yet called Moses to be what he will become. Because Moses needs years of a different kind of education, a different kind of training. We are told when Moses leaves Midian, as we'll see uh, in the coming weeks, and God calls him in the next chapter... And when he does that, he's 80 years old, meaning he was a wonder, a foreigner, an exile in a foreign desert for 40 years before he becomes what God has for him. Do you see the connection? Do you see how God's preparing him in a desert for 40 years when he's about to deliver a people and wander through a desert for 40 years? Moses' heart, though, at this point, is not ready to lead a people enslaved out of oppression through the desert and all that entails. First, he must be prepared by becoming like the people that he has been called to deliver. Not in his heritage only of being a Hebrew, but through his experience. Through the experience of being in exile for 40 years. Moses' rejection by the Egyptians and the Hebrews is not an accident. And neither is the place where he lands in Midian, because Midian is a significant location. It serves multiple purposes for us. It ties Moses to the past, to the patriarchal fathers, and it foreshadows Israel's future. Midian is one of Abraham's sons, a son that he has uh, with a wife after Sarah. And the people who brought Joseph and ultimately God's people into exile were Midianite traders. So the Midianites brought the patriarch Joseph to exile in Egypt. Moses winds up with the Midianites after his exile from Egypt. And just as a little cherry on top, he meets his wife at a well like Isaac and Jacob do. So the narrator is connecting Moses to the patriarchal fathers of the past of Genesis. And he's making a few things abundantly clear. He's showing the continuing, the obvious reality that all these events are orchestrated by God's hand. He's also showing us that he's making clear connections between Moses and the patriarchs before him. And third, he's showing us that in order for Moses to save God's people, before he does that, he has to become like them. He has to experience what they go through. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the New Testament, this should start to sound familiar. Because Jesus doesn't save us from afar, does he? He doesn't stay in heaven to save us. Moses left his palace in Egypt, but Jesus leaves heaven to become like us. 
he too is rejected by his own people. He too experiences what you and I go through. And God preparing Moses to save his people, the narrator is preparing us for the rest of the story. He's preparing us for what is to come, both in the book of Exodus, but also in the rest of the Bible. We see the pattern of salvation being laid out. We are being shown and continue to be shown this pattern of salvation that ultimately points to the ultimate deliverer in Jesus. But that's not how this chapter ends. It's a part of this chapter, but it's not how the story ends. So unless we forgot it, we're reminded that Israel is still in slavery. Israel is still being oppressed all this time by the enemy, by the Egyptians, and by Pharaoh. So here's the question we need to ask about them. Why have they not cried out yet? Why have God's people not cried out for help yet? Why have we not heard about them seeking God for deliverance? All the while, God is protecting and raising up and training their deliverer, but not once are we told that they're crying out to be delivered. In the midst of all of this story about God preparing Moses to be the deliverer, we must ask why they're not crying out for God to deliver them. Well, in this last section of chapter 2, they actually finally cry out. What seemed, but what seems to cause their reason to cry out? It can't be just that they're in slavery, because if that were the case, they would have cried out before. So why now? What's happened now that is causing them to cry out? What we read in this last part is that the king, the pharaoh, the one who has been so harsh and enslaved them and impressed them this whole time, he dies. But when he dies, what happens to them? Nothing changes. The new king, the new pharaoh takes over, but everything else stays the same. And I wonder if part of why they're crying out is because now, rather than before, is because they had put their hope in a new king and a new pharaoh taking over that maybe once he does, maybe once this new leader takes over, he might bring them relief and give them the freedom and the deliverance that they long for. But when that doesn't take place, they become desperate They lose their hope and intervention from the Egyptians and the Egyptian leader and from the government. And so they actually know that now they need help outside outside of where they are. It's almost as if they needed all the things and all the people that they hoped might bring them deliverance to fail, to go away, for them to finally cry out for help, for them to finally seek rescue. And sadly, I think this is how we function, too. I know it's how I do, often. That I'm, I, I'm good at complaining. <laughs> I'm good at seeking relief on my own terms and my own efforts. But I am slow to cry out for help. I will talk to a lot of people about what's going on, anyone who will listen, but I'm slow to cry out to God. In fact, ironically, as I was preparing this sermon, I was bemoaning to Monique, about how hard it was to get this together, which was not coming, it was not coming, it was not coming. And guess what I didn't do? (laughs) I didn't cry out. (laughs) In the midst of complaining to Monique, I realized that I was channeling uh, Israel in this, that I was not crying out in this. And it is in these last few verses, though, that God actually finally explicitly shows up. There's been no mention of him. 
through chapter 1 or chapter 2 until the very end. And here he finally shows up. It's almost as if the narrator is starting to pull back the curtain on what God has been doing the whole time. But no one had eyes to see it. We are told that God hears, he sees, he knows, and he remembers. This is a way of saying that God is and has been with them in their suffering. This is what it means by he says he hears and he sees. Notice our passage, verse 11, starts with Moses going out to look upon Israel's burdens, but it ends with the affirmation that the one who's really seen it all along is God. God's been the one looking at their burdens all along. But he is not just with them in their suffering. He's going to do something about it. He knows. More than that, he remembers. Anytime in the Bible it says God remembers, it's not saying that he had a lapse of memory, that he recalled something to his mind. It's saying that he is about to act. God is about to do something. The people finally cry out, and we're told God sees, God hears, God knows, he remembers, and he's going to do something about it. It's tempting, and it's easy to misunderstand what's taking place here. It's easy and tempting to conclude that God is acting now because the people cried out. That now because they cried out, God has finally showed up and God is finally going to act because they cried out. But that's not the case here. First, it doesn't say they cried out to God. It just says they cried out for help. They're not familiar with who God is. We're going to see that uh, in the next few chapters in Exodus. But look, it simply says they cried out and their cries came up to God. So why did their cries make their way up to God? Why is God going to act? We are told in verse 24, it's because of covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is calling to mind the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, or Abram in Genesis 15. It's there in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. God says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Do you remember how that covenant was solidified? Do you remember that story? Do you remember how covenants were solidified back in that time? What they would do is they would take the sacrificed animals and they'd cut them in half. And they'd put one half on one side and one half on another, creating a pathway to walk through, right? To walk through these sacrificed animals. And then each party that was represented in the covenant would walk in between the halves as a promise, saying, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals now happen to me. But in Genesis 15, when it comes time for the parties to walk through the two halves of the sacrificed animals, Abraham is made to go into a deep sleep. And so it's only God who walks through the two halves. And God is saying, as is the case, that uh, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. But because Abraham did not walk through, God is also saying, if you break this covenant, and if your descendants break this covenant, may this happen to me. 
Don't you see the narrator is telling us that at the end of Exodus 2, that God is not going to act and deliver his people because he hears their cries. God hears their cries because in Genesis 15, (laughs) he promised he would act. Do you see the difference? He's not acting because he hears their cries. He hears their cries because he promised to act. And just as 15 in the covenant, Moses steps out of his palace and tries to be a deliverer in his own way. But Jesus comes out of heaven to become like you to fulfill this covenant. Because on the cross, his cry did not go up to his father. On the cross, he's torn in two for covenant breakers like Israel and like you. And like me. It's interesting that Moses goes into exile in order to be prepared to deliver the people of God from slavery. Because you have to wonder, what did he learn? What did he lack? What did he need to be taught that the finest of education from Egypt couldn't offer him? Later in Numbers 12, we're told that Moses is described as humble. Not just humble, but more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's a way to become unhumble, if you hear that about yourself. But he's described as more humble than all the people who are on the face of the earth. What changed? What humbled Moses? I think it's the same thing that caused the people of God to finally cry out for help. That they lost hope in themselves. They lost hope in a government or a person changing. They lost hope in everyone and everything except for God. And that's the exhortation for us right now. It's to stop trying to do life your way on your own strength and your own resources. Your heart and your tensions may be right, like Moses who's seeking justice, but without God it doesn't matter and will never be enough. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to figure everything out on your own. Stop trying to fix things on your own. Stop believing that if this person becomes president or this circumstance change or this finance becomes different, then everything will be okay. But cry out for help. Cry out to our covenant-keeping God who does hear your cries and is acting on your behalf, not based on your worthiness, but based on his faithfulness. Because he is a covenant-keeping God. And how do you know that he's working on your behalf? How do you know he's going to hear your cries? How do you know that he's still your loving father in the midst of your suffering and your hurt and your pain? How do you know that he's working whatever is happening in your life actually for your deliverance and ultimately for your good? Because he refused to hear his son's cry on the cross. Because he refused to hear his son's cry because his son became like us, right? He, our deliverer became like us. And becoming like us, he actually, the way he delivers us is by taking our place. And when his cries go out on the cross, it's to a deaf ear of his father. So that your cry and my cry will always be heard. So that everything that happens in our life will only serve for our deliverance. And so the exhortation is for us to cry out because we have a covenant-keeping God who did not spare his own son, 
but sent him to be our deliverer by becoming like us, to be torn in two so that we can be put back together. Amen.